glad that you're listening to this podcast. This podcast is a ministry of the Bonners Ferry Baptist Church and of Pastor Devin Neal. Stand with me if you would out of respect for God's word as we'll read verses 10 through 22 of Exodus 25. The Lord is giving here uh, the instructions for the building of the tabernacle. He started in the instructions with the ark and then worked his way out to the brazen altar, and we've worked our way in and all the way up to the Ark of the Covenant. So here we are in verse 10. And they shall make an ark of shittim wood, two cubits and a half shall be the length thereof, and a cubit and a half the breadth thereof, and a cubit and a half the height thereof. And thou shalt overlay it with pure gold within and without, shalt thou overlay it, and shalt make upon it a crown of gold round about, And thou shalt cast four rings of gold for it, and put them in the four corners thereof. And two rings shall be in the one side of it, and two rings in the other side of it. And thou shalt make staves of shittim wood, and overlay them with gold. And thou shalt put the staves into the rings by the sides of the ark, that the ark may be borne with them. The staves shall be in the rings of the ark, they shall not be taken from it. Thou shalt put into the ark the testimony which I shall give thee. And thou shalt make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two cubits and a half shall be the length thereof, and a cubit and a half the breadth thereof. And thou shalt make two cherubims of gold. Of beaten work shalt thou make them in the two ends of the mercy seat. And make one cherub on the one end, and the other cherub on the other end, even of the mercy seat. Shall you make the cherubims of the two ends thereof. And the cherubims shall stretch forth their wings on high, covering the mercy seat with their wings, and their faces shall look one to another. Uh, Toward the mercy seat shall the faces of the cherubims be. And thou shalt put the mercy seat above upon the ark, and in the ark thou shalt put the testimony that I shall give thee. And there I will meet with thee, and I will commune with thee from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubims which are upon the ark of the testimony, of all things which I will give thee in commandment unto the children of Israel. Thank you. You may be seated. Um, just again, as we've been doing, let's walk ourselves back into the tabernacle. Uh, we started in this series uh, focusing on the tabernacle as a type of Christ, a type and picture of salvation, which is, by the way, uh, what Hebrews says it is. It is a figure on earth of the true tabernacle that's pitched in heaven. And so God gave a physical tabernacle to portray how things are in heaven and how we approach God. You'll notice this. God came to man by telling Moses, pitch a tabernacle. And that tabernacle being a dwelling place where God would meet with man. Uh, The tabernacle was the place where God and man met together. God descended from heaven and would his presence descend from heaven and fill that tabernacle and man would meet him that way. But how do you know this? God did not change his character so that man could approach to him. God said man must be changed for him to approach God. And God provided a way for man to be changed. Man being sinful and God being holy, God made a way. And what we've been doing is working our way through that tabernacle as it pictures God's way of salvation. It's a picture of Jesus Christ who tabernacled in the body of a man through the womb of a virgin he was born. God tabernacled in man, made an approach to God. And what we started with was that fence that goes around the outer tabernacle. There are pillars made of shatim wood overlaid with gold. We see that theme throughout the tabernacle, wood and gold. And we'll say more about that again this morning as we did in time past. And then, of course, there was one door, only one gate into the tabernacle, a picture of Jesus Christ being the only way. And inside that door, of course, we came to the brazen altar, speaking of the sacrifice of Christ on our behalf, dying in our place as those bullocks and goats and sheep would die on behalf of the people of Israel so that they could approach God. Even so, that speaks of Jesus Christ. And the brazen altar is a picture of the cross, then you go beyond the brazen altar and there's the laver. Once we've received the substitutionary work of Christ, we, our sins are pardoned for Christ's sake, yet we need the washing of His Word to prepare us for His service. We dealt with the laver made of brass. So the altar made of brass, the laver made of brass. But once you get inside the holy place, the first room inside the tent, the tabernacle, uh, you have on your right the table of showbread, uh, which is a picture of Jesus Christ, the bread of life, and His Word being bread for us. And then on the left is the golden candlesticks, the light of God's Word, the light of Christ, He being the light of the world. And then you had the altar of incense. And that 
pictures both especially our consecrated life to God through Christ because Christ has saved us, Christ has cleansed us, Christ has satisfied us, Christ is our light. We can live a consecrated life to God. It also portrays the intercessory work of Jesus Christ on our behalf, ever living to intercede for the sinner. But then last week we came to the veil, blue and scarlet and purple and fine twine linen with cherubims on the veil, telling us we are now approaching the very throne of God. The cherubims, you find angels around the throne in heaven. Cherubims are angels. They're uh, angels referred to as cherubims and seraphims. And people say, please, tell me the difference. One's a cherubim, the other's a seraphim. That's about as good as I can do for you today. Um, They're angels that surround the throne of God. And when we're dealing with that, especially the book of Revelation, you find the angels worshiping God. They're God's creation. We're reminded and we see these cherubims, you are now approaching the throne of God. Those cherubims were in that veil. And, of course, the Bible says that the veil is a picture of the flesh, the body of Christ that was rent. And because his body was broken in our place, he died for every man. He gave us access to the very throne of God. We'll see that again today. The mercy seat is a, is a picture. It is where God says, I will come and I will meet with you here. That's the last verse we read. And the throne, this, this mercy seat is a picture of God's throne where God rules uh, over men. And yet it's called the mercy seat because it's where God and man are able to meet. And we'll say more about that. I want to give you this morning uh, three things about the, the, the ark of the Lord, the ark of the covenant and the mercy seat that I I believe should be helpful to us. If you're here saved this morning, a message that highlights our salvation and gives more understanding of what Christ has done for us should only serve to deepen your faith in the Lord, uh, increase your love for the Lord, your gratitude, and bring us to that place where we are willingly submitted to His will for our life. It's at the mercy seat that worship was fully carried out. It's at the mercy seat where only one man once a year would go in there. Uh, in, the, in the holy place, the priests could eat together in fellowship, but inside the veil, only the high priest went in uh, once a year with blood, would anoint the mercy seat uh, with the blood that was offered on the brazen altar. And again, there's significance in all of that. Uh, but this is, this is where God said, I'll meet with you. My very presence will meet with you here. And today, what the Bible makes clear through the book of Hebrews is the believer in Jesus Christ has personal direct access to the throne of God, which is portrayed here in the Ark of the Covenant and the Mercy Seat. Some of the the information we'll give you this morning will first be factual, as we've done with many of these messages. We have to lay down the facts and then begin to draw the comparison between uh, the facts that are here that portray the Lord Jesus Christ, portray what He's done for us and what that means to us. I believe one of... I believe this personally. The Lord constantly is working on my heart to understand the value of prayer. Prayer meaning when I enter into the very presence of God that I might obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. I believe that prayer is the most underused resource of any Christian. And I believe we wouldn't have long to prove that this morning. How many of us have needs today? How many of us could articulate those needs? Spiritual needs, physical needs, uh, emotional needs. Uh, we have needs today. And yet, and I'm not, I, I want to be right in my spirit, and I say this, many times those needs have not even been articulated to the Lord in prayer. We have needs. We talk about those needs with other people. And yet this morning, I, I'm just going to make the, the assumption, I think it's a safe assumption, that the majority of people in this room today are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Your sins have been forgiven. Christ is your Savior. I'm not assuming that everyone in this room is saved, but I'm assuming that the majority of you, because I know most of your personal testimony, though I'm not God, there are evidences that go along with being a Christian, and I'm gonna, I believe it's a safe assumption the majority of people in this room this morning are saved, meaning we have the privilege of prayer at our disposal. And yet, how often do we use it? I don't, I believe this, because prayer is so valuable, and this is not an entire message about prayer, but we cannot preach on the throne without preaching on prayer. Prayer is our approaching the throne of God to receive from Him the things we need. And it's Jesus Christ that gives us that access. No person has access to God outside of the person of Jesus Christ. He's the only way to approach God. But because Christ is our Savior, we have access to the throne of grace. I encourage you, if you're here this morning, you're saved, 
would you open your heart to the Holy Spirit of God this morning to speak to you about the significance of prayer, about how important it is to use the, the blessed opportunity and, and even obligation we have to go to God in prayer, to take full advantage of the fact that he's made us so many promises if we would but pray. And then ask yourself, how's my prayer life? What place and priority does prayer have in my life? Am I praying about my relationship with God? Am I praying about his will for my life? Am I praying about the needs? And just, I'm impressed to emphasize that even at the beginning of this message. And having said that, let me give you a few things factually. And we're talking about the Ark of the Covenant or the Ark of the Testimony. I've written down eight different names that that are given to or references to the Ark that I could find in the Bible. It's called the Ark of the Testimony. The Ark of the Testimony. That's what's referred to in the book of Exodus as the most. We get into the book of Numbers and it's called the Ark of the Covenant. That's what most people know it as. The Ark of the Covenant. So it's called the Ark of the Testimony. The Ark of the Covenant. In the book of Revelation it's called the Ark of His Testament. Uh, it is referred to numerous times, especially in the book of Joshua, as the Ark of the Lord, of Jehovah God, the Ark of the Lord. It's referred to as the Ark of God. It's referred to as the Ark of the God of Israel, the Ark of our God. And it is also referred to as the Ark of thy strength. Now, the Ark is something that is referenced over and over. I believe it would not be difficult to preach an entire series of messages for weeks on end on the Ark alone. You think about the Ark of the Covenant and all the things in Israel that surrounded the Ark of the Covenant. We have the account of, for instance, when David, uh, the Ark of the Covenant was stolen by the Philistines in battle. In 1 Samuel, Hophni and Phinehas thought they could just carry God along with them and he would be their magic to give them victory in battle. And those wicked men died that day. And the Ark of the Covenant was stolen by the Philistines and then was returned because they were under such a curse. And then the men, I believe, uh, I think it was of Obed-Edom, I forget, they opened that thing up and some 50,000 men died because they approached the Ark of God by removing the mercy seat, meaning they have tried to approach God without God's mercy. You find people dying from mishandling the ark. When David finally decided we're going to bring back into Jerusalem, Uzzah, who became accustomed to the ark, just reached out to grab it and settle it because it was jarring off the cart and he was immediately killed. I mean, you and I don't mishandle God. It's a reminder that God is holy and you do not simply approach him any old way. We have to approach him God's way. We think about the Ark of the Covenant. It's uh, when the temple was built, uh, Solomon had it moved from a tabernacle to the temple. The temple was essentially built to place, uh, for to place, uh, to, as a place to house the Ark of the Covenant. I mean, it is throughout the scripture it's referred to. Uh, the book of Hebrews will refer to it this morning and give us some detail about all the contents that were inside. But it is a central theme of Israelite life because it represented God's place of meeting with man. There were times that it went silent. The place where God would meet with the Israelites was stolen in the hands of the enemy, as we referenced. And so it is a central part of the, uh, of the Jewish life, or it was, uh, until, of course, the Lord fulfilled the typology of it. And so a uh, very important piece of furniture. In, in fact, the most important piece of furniture in the tabernacle, all the other was designed to bring us to this point. All the rest was designed to bring us to the very presence of God. The most important relationship in your life today is your relationship with the Lord. Boy, we fret and fuss and tend to every human relationship and people get all bent out of shape over family relationship and work relationship. And I understand that, but many times to the neglect of our relationship with God. Some don't even know if they have a relationship with God. May I say every human being is in relation to God in some way or another. You need to understand where that relationship is. You're either in enmity against God, meaning you're against Him, or you've been reconciled to God. That's what it means to be saved. But even as reconciled to God, meaning our sins are pardoned, we are His children, you can be in fellowship or out of fellowship. You can be in agreement with God or in disagreement with God. You can have the peace of God or you cannot have the peace of God. And so this message today is about the very presence of God and how God had made a way to approach. And so... As we hone in and focus on this, 
uh, let's let's ask the Lord to give us some understanding. Let's begin this morning as far as the, the sermon outline is concerned. In verses 10 through 15, we're given the details of the construction of the ark. So we've kind of done this with the various pieces of furniture. The construction of the ark, I'll give you three things about its construction. Its measurement, the materials, and the manner in which it was constructed. And as with the other pieces, there are going to be things that speak to us concerning the person of Jesus Christ. Now, in contrast to the brazen altar, which was four square, and the incense altar, which was four square, this, this ark is rectangular. You say, what's the significance? I'll be honest with you. I don't know other than to distinguish it from the fact it's not an altar. This is not an altar. This is an ark. It is a place that is, a, that is intended to be a throne, to picture the throne of God. And so it's two and a half cubits um, wide, so its width is two and a half cubits. That's going to be 45 inches, so just under four feet wide. It is a cubit and a half, um, um, I guess you'd say two and, a half, two and a half cubits long, a cubit and a half wide, and a cubit and a half tall. So 27 inches tall, about 27 inches width that way, and then 45 inches long. Uh, so not a large piece of furniture. It's not very big by comparison, for instance, to the brazen altar. Uh, and that's the measurements of it. It's rectangular, and that's going to be important when we compare it to the mercy seat in a few minutes. The materials it was made with was the shatim wood overlaid with gold. I'll remind us once again that that is a picture and a type of the humanity and the deity of Christ. If I ask you this morning, well, the, the brazen altar, or excuse me, the Ark of the Covenant, was it made of wood or made of gold? Your answer would be yes. Isn't it amazing with physical things? We don't have a hard time with that. But if you ask of Jesus Christ, is he God or is he man? What would you say? You'd say yes. He's both. The Ark of the Covenant was both wood, speaking of earthly things, and I know gold is earthly, but which would we say is more durable and abiding, gold or wood? Which is more precious, gold or wood? And so the gold, speaking of heaven, of the divinity of God, we know in heaven the streets are paved with gold. And so the uh, the gold, a picture of the deity of, of Jesus Christ, His eternal nature, yet it is bonded to the wood. And throughout the tabernacle we see that the pillars were made with shittim wood, overlaid with gold. The altar of incense was shittim wood overlaid with gold. Not just the wood, not just the gold, although there were pieces that were solid gold, such as the mercy seat. This is a picture of the, the humanity and the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible says of the Lord Jesus in John 1, 14, uh, and the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and Truth And so the, the materials used to craft the, uh, the Ark of the Covenant speak of the divinity and the humanity of Jesus Christ. The only thing the Lord Jesus lacked in humanity is, is, is sin. He became sin, but he never sinned. And so uh, we see that the materials uh, portray the Lord Jesus Christ. The manner in which it was made I find most interesting in that we know that on the, uh, on the brazen altar and on the altar of incense there would be what we might refer to as a crown or a, uh, a around that, but how many of us remember what was on the brazen altar and was also on the altar of incense on, a, on each corner? What was that? Horns. And the horns are a picture of sin and the strength of sin. You know what there is not on the, the Ark of the Covenant? It was a crown, but there are no horns. There is no sin with God, none whatsoever. And so there was a crown. We don't have the dimensions here in this text of that crown, and you think about this, it was a golden crown. It was not gold, wood overlaid with gold, it was just a crown. The Bible says in verse 11, And thou shalt overlay it with pure gold, within and without shalt thou overlay it, and shalt make upon it a crown of gold round about. When I say a crown of gold, what do you think of? I think of a king. Crowns of gold go on kings. That's because this piece of furniture is speaking of the rule and the reign of Jesus Christ, is speaking of his kingdom, it's speaking of his authority. This is a picture and a type of his throne. And therefore it has a crown of gold, but no horns, no sin, no strength of sin uh, there. God has conquered sin in Christ Jesus. And so the manner of its construction is, is significant. Now, we move on next to something a little more significant, and that's the contents. If you're there in Exodus 25, 
it only gives us one thing in Exodus 25 to be placed inside the ark. So it's, it's this hollow um, ark. We would call it a chest if we were to make it, but God calls it an ark. An author I was reading mentions the fact there are three arks found in the Bible. You have Noah's ark where he went inside and was spared the judgment of God in the flood. You have Moses' ark where his mother hid him in bulrushes and also was pitched within and without and he was kept safe. But then you have this ark. Each ark deals with safety and being spared God's judgment. Each and every one. This one, of course, is very different from the first two uh, in that it is in the very holy of holies and is representative of God's holiness and his power. But inside the ark, the Bible records there were some things that were, were placed inside. And remember, it is the ark of the testimony. What God put inside, he put as a testimony. God was speaking. It was to make a statement. And so then we're going to examine those contents here in just a moment. Exodus twenty five sixteen says, And thou shalt put into the ark the testimony which I shall give thee. Undoubtedly, that's a reference to the tables of stone, but it's more than that. Turn now, if you would, to Hebrews chapter 9 where we have a record in the New Testament of what God had put in there. And he wants a testimony inside the ark. You see, many times we, we can give testimony. And um, when it comes to our testimony, our testimony is only as good as our knowledge, number one. Amen? I think there's two things that, that really fundamentally affect testimony, knowledge and integrity. <laughs> you can have knowledge. So, for instance, let's say we're all standing out here and we see a motorcycle just screeching down the street, just flying down through here, and a car pulls out right in front of it, and that motorcycle T-bones that car. We all watch that happen, and the police officers show up, and they start taking testimony. Every one of us is going to give what we know, but let's say from my vantage point, all I could see is the motorcycle, and the officer says, what did you see? And I say, man, he was going really fast. He says, well, how fast do you think he was going? Now my testimony is limited by my lack of knowledge. I'm going to say, well, based on my experience, I'd say he was doing 65. He'd say, Would you, do you know that? I'd say, no, I didn't have a radar gun, but I'm guessing. So, well, what happened when he impacted the car? I'd say, I don't know. I couldn't see the car. I just saw the bike. They say to some of you, what's your testimony? You say, man, all we saw was we heard an explosion. We looked up and some guys flying through the air. Every one of us is going to be limited by our knowledge or lack thereof. Now, let's say, let's just say it was the person in the car, it was their fault. And you happen to know the person in the car, it's your great uncle, and he's going to leave you a fortune when he dies. You think, man, I don't want to make Uncle Bob mad. So I know it was his fault, but I ain't going to tell. Now your testimony is affected by a lack of integrity. God lacks neither knowledge or integrity. Amen? God isn't going to change his testimony out of respect of persons. He's not going to say, oh, that was really bad, but he's a really important person. If I say something bad about him, people might get upset at me as as God because everybody likes him and I'm upset with him. No, God is no respecter of persons. He has complete integrity. And the eyes of the Lord are in every place, beholding the evil and the good, Proverbs chapter 15 tells us. And so God's testimony is perfect. The testimony of the Lord is sure. Meaning when God speaks, what he says is true. And God says, I want something put in that ark to testify of the truth of who I am and to testify the truth of who man is. May I say the the greatest testimony of all time is the cross of Jesus Christ. It testifies of the horror of sin. It testifies of the sinfulness of man. But it testifies of the goodness and righteousness and holiness and mercy of an almighty God all at the same time. And what was put inside the Ark of the Covenant was a testimony. Meaning God says, I'm going to place some things in there as objects to testify, to give my my judgment. You know what a testimony is? It's a judgment. He says, I'm going to give my judgment on some things. And it's interesting what he had put inside the Ark, the contents. Hebrews chapter 9, beginning verse 1, he says, Then verily the first covenant, that's talking about the old covenant under the law, then verily the first covenant had also ordinances of diverse divine of divine service and a worldly sanctuary. That's talking about the tabernacle. For there was a tabernacle made, the first, wherein was the candlestick and the table and the showbread, which is called the sanctuary. And after the second veil, the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all, which had the golden censer and the ark of the covenant 
overlaid round about with gold, wherein was, here are the contents, the golden pot that had manna, and Aaron's rod that budded, and the tables of the covenant. Now these things are there for a testimony. They are God's judgment. They are God's verdict, if you would. My question would be, does the golden pot of manna testify about God or man? The answer would be yes. Does Aaron's rod that budded testify about God? Is it saying something about who God is or about who man is? The answer again would be yes. And then the tables of stone, the tables of testimony, the the Ten Commandments on tables of stone, was that a testimony about God or man? And again, the answer is yes. If I ask you this morning about the golden pot of manna, I, I just want you, especially those of you who know, you know your Bible, you're familiar, and if you're not, that's okay. But if you're here this morning, you're familiar with your Bible, and we say the golden pot of manna, I want you to tell me the first thing it brings to your mind about the children of Israel, the manna. Complaining, murmuring. First of all, they complained because they said, we don't have anything to eat. God brought us out here to die. Moses brought us out here to die. We're going to starve. And so God gave them manna. And then after they got it, they said, we loathe this bread. We don't have anything to eat, and we loathe this bread. Right? They constantly complained. We wish we had flesh to eat. So when you think of the golden pot of manna, does it give you a good idea about the children of Israel? Or it's like, ugh. What does it testify about the people who received it? Nothing good. Nothing good. They were, they, were dis, they were disbelieving. God had promised to take them from Egypt to the promised land. When did they say, we don't have to worry, God promised. At what point did the nation of Israel, as he led them from the nation of Egypt to the land of Canaan to conquer their enemies, what point did they say, you know what, we have nothing to worry about. If we're out of food, God will provide. He didn't bring us out here to kill us. He told us he brought us to give us a land of promise. Never. They murmured the whole way. When did they say, when we get there, nothing to worry about? God, who parted the Red Sea, he'll have no problem killing our enemies. So you know what that pot of manna testified? Man is not fit to meet with God. He doesn't believe God's promises. I I took a nation that were slaves. Through my plagues, I set them free. I took them across the Red Sea, and I had to give them manna because they thought I was trying to kill them. And then they complained about what I gave them. But it's in a golden pot. That means it doesn't just speak of the sinfulness of man. It speaks of the goodness of man. something. Did those people deserve manna? No. But had God promised to get them from Egypt to Canaan? So when man fails in his part of the covenant, God does not. This is the Ark of the Covenant. A covenant is not a contract. A contract says... I'll do my part as long as you do your part. Most people look at marriage that way. I'm just going to give it a quick shot about marriage. Marriage is not a contract. It's a covenant. I do my part whether you do yours or not. Most people forget that. No, if you don't do your part, then I have a right not to do my part. I promised I do and, you know, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer. But since you don't feel that way about me anymore, now I don't feel that way about you anymore. And it doesn't matter. I made a vow before God. I'm going to break it anyway. That's how they were preaching about the Ark of the Covenant. We were, but I just took a little side road. <laughs> you know, when God makes covenants, he always keeps his end, of the, his end of the covenant. God said, I will bring you out of Egypt and bring you into the land of Canaan. And they said, you're trying to kill us. And he said, but I'm still going to bring you because I promised. I'll keep my part of the covenant. So the golden pot of manna reminds us of the disbelief and the discontentment of, of man. Particularly, we see that characterized in the nation of Israel. All right, the golden pot of manna. And then the next thing was Aaron's rod that budded. We don't have time to turn there, but in Numbers chapter 16, you have some men that that got upset because Moses and Aaron were in leadership and they were not. And they charged Moses and Aaron with taking too much upon themselves. In essence, the way we would say it today is, you're a couple of dictators trying to become a king in our lives. That's basically what they said. Now, the thing is, Moses did not appoint himself to leadership and Aaron didn't appoint himself to leadership. They were appointed by God. Amen? be like a child walking with parents saying, you, you take too much upon you. You're trying to tell us what to do. Well, actually, God said, I'm the parent. I'm supposed to tell you what to do. That's the way that works, right? And so they, they charged Moses and Aaron with taking too much upon themselves. It was Korah, a man named Korah, who was the, of the tribe of Levi. He had a position of service around the tabernacle, but he wasn't content with what he was given to do. He wanted Aaron's position. 
And you know what's amazing? You know who was actually taking too much upon himself? Korah. He was exactly guilty of what he accused Aaron of. I mean, precisely. And that's nothing new. And so he said, you take too much upon yourself. Uh, we, are, we are also the servants of God. We should be able to be the priest. We should be able to go into the holy place. We should be able to do these things just like you. Who do you think you are? And Korah, along with a couple of guys named Dathan and Abiram, got 250 high-level men in the nation of Israel to oppose and try to overthrow Moses and Aaron. Now, when did God tell these men to do that? And so to solve the dispute, first of all, some men died. Korah, Dathan, and Abiram, the earth opened up and they dropped directly into hell. That's what the Bible says, they went into the pit, which means hell. So God took care of them, but then the next day there's a dispute over who God's choice was to be the, the high priest. And he said, I want one, one leader from every tribe to bring a rod. How many of us know what a rod is? It's a dead stick that's been cut off for to use for hiking or shepherding or whatever. So this is a dry, dead stick. And I want you to bring your rod. You're going to lay them before the Lord. And tomorrow, the rod that buds, meaning the dead stick comes to life, that's the person that God has appointed to be the high priest. And, of course, it was Aaron's rod that budded. And, and it gave almonds. You know, it's a picture of the resurrection power of God. God can bring life out of dead things. But when you think of Aaron's rod that budded, what kind of a testimony is it of people? That men are not only, they're not only disbelieving and discontent, they're defiant. Had God made it clear who his choice for high priest was before Aaron's rod budded? He had by his word appointed Aaron, but God's word wasn't enough for Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. It wasn't enough. It wasn't enough for those people. The word of God alone was not enough. And so they were still disbelieving, still discontent. But now their disbelief and discontentment has turned into defiance. So if you opened up the mercy seat, you know what you're going to see? Man is awful. But you know what God did? He didn't wipe the whole nation out. He said, I'm going to fix this. I'm going to make it clear who I've appointed as the high priest by bringing life out of death. He's appointed over us a high priest today. It's not Buddha. It's not Muhammad. The word of God's not enough for some people. It's not the way of Joseph Smith or Charles Taze Russell or Ellen White or any other person. It's Jesus Christ. God has said he's appointed one man over all of us, and that's Jesus Christ. You know how he proved it? He brought life out of death. They put Jesus in the ground and he came out alive three days later proving to all mankind who God has appointed to be the Christ of the world. There's not multiple ways to God. There's not multiple ways of salvation. There's not multiple ways to obtain righteousness. God has appointed a high priest, not of the house of Aaron, but of the Bible says of the, uh, of the lineage of Melchizedek, or after the order of Melchizedek, and it's Jesus Christ. Go with me quickly to Acts 17 if you would. God has given testimony, and that uh, rod that budded there is a testimony of God's appointment. It is a testimony of man's rebellion, of man's defiance, of man's discontentment, and man's disobedience. But it's a testimony to God's faithfulness. The golden pot of manna, though man rebelled, though man was discontent, though man was disbelieving, God provided anyway sufficiently for 40 years. He fed those people with manna. Every day they had food to eat. God was faithful to keep his own word. Acts chapter 17, uh, verse 30. In the times of this ignorance God winked at, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent, verse 31, because he hath appointed a day in the which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained, whereof he hath given assurance unto all men. How's God given assurance unto all men? In that he hath raised him from the dead. Just like a rod blossomed and bloomed and gave almonds, it's a dead stick. Just like so God raised Jesus from the dead. On that day, only one man had the budding rod, and that was Aaron. And God said, Aaron, you're not going to keep that rod. I'm going to put it in the Ark of the Covenant, in the Ark of the Testimony, as a testimony that I've appointed one high priest. And so we have the golden pot of manna that reminds us of the disbelief and the disobedience and the discontentment of mankind. We have the, the rod that blossomed that reminds us of the defiance and the rebellion of mankind. And yet we have the rod that reminds us of God's faithfulness and the manna that reminds us of God's faithfulness and God's righteousness and God's goodness. 
How many of you would have continued to put up with what God put up with? You say, that nation of Israel, a bunch of stiff-necked people. Yeah, it's there as an instruction to us. May we see ourselves there. Amen? How much does God have to prove to us that he can be trusted before we do? So it's there for our admonition. That's what 1 Corinthians 10 says, lest we be like that. It was there for our instruction. And finally, the last thing God had in there in Hebrews chapter 9, the Bible says in verse 4, there was the golden pot that had manna, and Aaron's rod that budded, and the tables of the covenant. How many of you remember this was the second set? Well, not the first one, because what happened to the first one? Well, the nation of Israel broke them, and then Moses broke them. <laughs> the nation of Israel broke them in the sense of disobeying them, meaning the first and great commandment is, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, soul, mind, strength, right? The first commandment of the Ten Commandments is, Thou shalt have no other gods before thee. And as Moses came off the mountain, he found that they had made a golden calf. They were already in violation of all the commandments. They were immoral in their behavior. They were, there was music and dancing. The people had taken off their clothing. I mean, all the commandments are being violated at one time. So when you saw the Ten Commandments, you wish to remind you, God is good and we are bad. How many of the, of the Ten Commandments, which of them were a bad commandment? None, they're good. Uh, to honor the Lord and have no other gods before Him and honor your father and mother. And remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. And all those Ten Commandments, they were perfectly good. They were God's laws for God's people. And yet, over the course of history, Israel as a nation utterly failed to live up to God's law. Truth? All mankind has utterly failed to live up to God's law. And those Ten Commandments in there were a reminder, you have no right at my throne. You've broken my laws. You've rebelled against those I've appointed over you. You've been disbelieving of my promises and discontent with my provision. What right do you have to come into my presence? Now, if there were no lid on that mercy seat, you know what you'd do? You'd look at it and you'd die before the holiness of God. But God made a way for all those three things that were a testimony of the horrific sinfulness of man and the faithfulness of God. God made a way for those things to be covered and concealed. They were inside the ark, but you wouldn't lay eyes on them. And if you did, you'd die. The point is, if you and I approach God as we are, we have nothing but death to look forward to. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death. Can we take just a quick, a quick, I was dealing with a man this week who is trying to, to keep parts of the law and yet willingly acknowledging he's not perfectly keeping the parts he's trying to keep. The law had a purpose. We'll be dealing with this tonight in Galatians chapter 3. For those who are under the law, they're cursed. If you're trying to live under the law, which was given for a time to prove that we need a Savior, See, the law has been fulfilled. It was not bad. It's not been demolished in the sense of it was no good. It had a, a purpose for a specific time, and that has been fulfilled. When Christ came, God said, I require that man have no other gods before me. I require that he honor his father and his mother. I require that he does not covet. I require that he does not steal. If man wants a relationship with me, this is what he must do. He cannot commit adultery. And the Lord Jesus gave clarification to that. That means not even in your heart. You cannot, and if you do, you're not fit to come to me. You can't bear false witness against your neighbor. And when I tell you to rest, you must rest. Don't covet and work yourself to death trying to make money. Honor that day and come aside and rest knowing that you have enough. Be satisfied. You know the Sabbath is much about, about being satisfied. You know why I was constantly in violation? Covetousness. We can go on down the line. God gave those ten simple commandments. And if we were to do a quiz this morning, not a person in this room can pass number one. Not one can get past the first commandment. Why are we worried about the ninth and the tenth when we fail on number one? Remember when I took my CDL examination, you have an automatic failure for one violation. Anybody remember what that violation is? Jim and Jeff, what is the violation? You automatically fail if you miss this one. That's number one, automatic fail. There's another one. If you don't stop at a railroad track, that's what I'm thinking of. If you buzz across a railroad track and you don't do a proper stop, you're done. I mean, you're, you're through. And so I remember going to that thinking, 
Yeah, and I've heard of guys, they said, you know, I was doing well. I was doing perfect. And then I forgot a railroad track. Why go on? It's an automatic fail. Why go on through the rest of the motions? Waste your instructor's time and your time. If you have an instructor worth his salt, he's going to say, you know what? You're done. You just failed. You know what? If you can't, God says, if you offend God's law on one point, you're guilty of all. So why go on? Why, why even go on and say, well, I'll just try to keep the rest. I failed here. You are condemned, which is the purpose of the law. The purpose of the law is not to give you life. The purpose of the law is to kill you. To prove you are dead in trespasses and sins. And unless God gives you life, you cannot approach God. And that those three things inside that ark proved man failed to keep his part of the covenant. He was not content with God's provision. He did not believe God's promises. He did not obey God's commandments. He did not submit to God's authority. Man utterly failed to worship God. I should have no other gods before thee. How many of us have ever let something... Get between us and God. Everyone. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And inside that mercy seat was a reminder God has been faithful. In spite of a grumbling people, He provided. In spite of a disobedient people, they did inherit the land of promise. Did they not? God did what He said He would do. They did not. God is a covenant-keeping God And if it weren't for His mercy, no one would have fellowship with Him. And so here's the ark, and the contents of the ark are a constant testimony, a reminder of the failure and the sinfulness of man and the faithfulness of God. That's the message of these contents, is that you and I have, we have sinned and have violated God's law. We're under the curse. All those things remind us that man is worthy of death. Galatians chapter 3. We'll be here tonight. I'm about done this morning. Galatians chapter 3. I want to read verse 10. Galatians chapter 3. To the Galatians, there were those that were being taught uh, the circumcision was the symbol of law-keeping. They were taught to go back to the Mosaic law when Christ had finished. I began to say earlier, you go down those Ten Commandments, God said, this is what I require. If man is to approach me, this is what I require. And for hundreds of years, no man could meet God's requirement until Jesus came. The Bible says, but when, in the, when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth His Son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law. Meaning man, there was not one man, not one, in all the hundreds of years of the dispensation of law, from Moses till Christ, there was not one man that could meet God's requirements. To have no other God before him, to love God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love his neighbor as himself. You know what Jesus Christ did on the cross? He loved God with all his, as a man, he loved God with all his heart and soul and mind and strength in so much, so much out of love for God the Father, he died to please God. And in dying on the cross, he loved his neighbor as himself because he died that you and I might live. And in the person of Jesus Christ, everything the law demands, he did it. And the only way to please God is to come to him in Jesus Christ. There's only one person that has fulfilled every righteous demand of God, and that's Jesus Christ, and we rest in him. He's done it for me. We approach God through representation. Amen? There's one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Galatians chapter 3 verse 10 says, For as many as are of the works of the law, meaning you're going to make yourself justified by keeping the law, for as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone that continueth not in, what's the next two words please? All things which are written in the book of the law to do them. If you're going to keep the law, you have to keep it all. James 2 says the exact same thing. James chapter 2, verse 10. If we're guilty in one point, we've offended the whole. Meaning, you either keep all the law or none of it. Say the law is bad, the law is good. It is so good that none of us can live up to its holy requirements except for one person, Jesus Christ. He is the mercy seat. Amen? That brings us to our final point on the Ark of the Covenant. We've seen its construction that symbolizes Christ, the contents, the manner of contents and the message of those contents. Then finally, the covering. Back to Exodus chapter 25. We have the Ark of the Covenant, but God didn't just leave the Ark with a testimony of man's 
wickedness and his faithfulness, he made a covering, something that resolves that message that's inside the ark, and that's the mercy seat. I find it so interesting that under the law, the name for God's throne was not the judgment seat, but the mercy seat. Uh, This morning, what is mercy? It's, by the way, something that in American culture, and particularly in so-called American Christianity, we've almost lost sight of the word or a meaning of its definition. In 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 a society that says, I don't get what I deserve, I mean, that's the, that, is, that, is a, that is a general attitude that prevails in our culture. I am basically good, and therefore, if bad things happen to me, I'm not getting what I deserve. I should be treated better by people, and I certainly should be treated better by God. Right? An entitlement mentality, we call it, it's worse than that. It's, it's how do, I mean, the, the question that gets asked by atheists, why do bad things happen to good people? Show me a good person, I'll tell you why. The only way we call another man good is by comparing him to another man. We compare men to Christ and there's none good, not one. Who can say I'm inherently good? I've always only done right. Not one. So do bad things happen to good people? Or do good things happen to bad people? I'm blessed this morning, so are you. Because what we deserve this morning is the wrath of God. But instead, God gives us an opportunity to have his forgiveness, to have his salvation, to not only have his blessings on this earth, but to have an eternal home in heaven with him. Is not God good? You know what brings man to repentance? The goodness of God. We have a culture that's preaching the goodness of man because it's deceived. And so this covering of the ark, God provided mercy. Mercy is God withholding what we deserve. God withholding what we've justly earned. A punishment justly due. Now, God didn't just withhold it so he might say, well, I just want to be nice today. You've broken my law. You deserve death, but I changed my mind. No, our our penalty was handed out, but we had someone step between us and God, just like the mercy seat. The mercy seat stood between the sinfulness of man and the holiness of God to make it possible for man to approach God, and that's what Jesus Christ has done. He has dealt with our sin once and for all. He's dealt with our rebellion. He's dealt with our discontentment. He's dealt with our disbelief. He dealt with all of that when he died on the cross. He took the judgment of God that we deserve so that we can approach God. And so then the covering, back to Exodus chapter 25, verse 17, he says, Thou shalt make a mercy seat of pure gold, Two cubits and a half shall be the length thereof, and a cubit and a half the breadth thereof. Now, let's not move on too quickly, because he's going to go on to the cherubims. When we're given the dimensions of the Ark of the Covenant, how many of those dimensions are we given? Three. Height, depth, and width. On the mercy seat, you're only given two dimensions. It is two and a half wide, so it can sit the width of the Ark, and it's one and a half wide, the other one's length, however you want to say it. But how high is it? What's the, what's the depth or the height of the mercy seat? Now, I had to have one, but God decided not to record it for us. What is the depth of God's mercy? He is long-suffering, is he not? God's mercy is, I don't believe you can put a measurement on it. I'm going to see a few texts of Scripture very quickly. Psalm 103, verse 8, and I will, I will move along as quickly as I can, but... Psalm 103, verse 8. We need reminded of God's mercy today. Many times the devil gets us over a barrel in saying, you deserve for God to never hear your prayer again. Correct. But because of Christ, I have mercy. Now, mercy is not a license to sin. Mercy should bring us to the end of ourselves in gratitude. Psalm 103, verse 8. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and plenteous. What's it say? Plenteous. In mercy, plenteous in mercy, meaning in the 21st century, have we not tried God's patience enough? Why should he wait one more day to exact wrath and judgment? Let me ask you something. Is the world getting from God what it deserves right now? Absolutely not. You know why? Because he is plenteous in 
mercy. The Bible says the Lord is not slack concerning the wrath and judgment of God. The Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some men count slackness, but His long-suffering to us. We're not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God is willing to give us time to come along to His terms. Psalm 130, verse 4, verse uh, says, uh, verse 3, If thou, Lord, shouldest mark iniquities, O Lord, who shall stand? But there is forgiveness with thee, that thou mayest be feared. And then Psalm 130, verse 7, Let Israel hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is mercy, and with him, there's this word again, is plenteous redemption. We could read for the next 30, 40 minutes verses on mercy if we so chose. He is, he is a Lord of mercy, meaning willing to withhold from us what we've justly earned and deserved. I believe this. You'll not get saved until you agree with God that you deserve to go to hell. You deserve it. Not that anybody that thinks, I don't understand why God would send anybody to hell. If we can just come along to God's way of thinking, we can't understand why he'd let anybody into heaven. Amen? Our minds are in backwards because our hearts are hard many times. Oh, if God could soften our hearts and we could see ourselves as he does. When is God, I'll be honest with you, when I was a saved young man and I wasn't submitting to God like I should be, it was the mercy of God that brought repentance in my life. I could point to people that said they were Christians and say, they treated me wrong, and they treated those people wrong. And if that's what Christianity is, ah! But when it got down between me and the Lord, what He had done for me, Nevin, when have I not done what I said I would do? Show me one verse in the Bible that's not true. I can't. Show me one time that I have not kept my word. In fact, it boiled down to this. Why are you not going to die and go to hell? And all I could say is because you keep your promises. I sure enough deserve it. My friend, it's the mercies of the Lord that keeps us from being consumed because His compassions fail not. And that's what Lamentations 3 tells us. So the measurement of this thing tells us of the depth of God's mercy and then the magnificence of it. Let's go back to Exodus 25 as we conclude this morning. He said in verse 18, And thou shalt make two cherubims of gold, of beaten work shalt thou make them in the two ends of the mercy seat, and make one cherub on the one end and the other cherub on the other end, even of the mercy seat shall you make the cherubims on the two ends thereof. When Hebrews comes to this, uh, the writer says, We cannot speak particularly of this at this time. The, the cherubims. It's hard to explain, but what it tells us of the grandeur and the glory of God. If you read Isaiah chapter 6, it talks about seraphims in Isaiah 6 crying at the throne of God, Holy Holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And the, the place quaked and trembled. It's speaking of the greatness and the power of God, meaning God has power to consume. His holiness will consume, but because of mercy, we are not consumed. And so the magnificence of this thing is seen in the cherubims made of solid gold. In your own time, you could read Isaiah 6, 1 through 4, and Revelation 5, 12 and 7, 11 that speak of angels around His throne worshiping God. And then finally, we come to the mercy itself, what you find in this mercy seat is you have all those contents, a reminder of the, the worthiness of man to be judged by God, but God's willing to cover it. And he's, he, he makes it a covering so that he can come and be on that place. He said, this is where I will meet with you. In Exodus 25, he says in verse 20, And the cherubim shall stretch forth their wings on high, covering the mercy seat with their wings, and their faces shall look one to another. Toward the mercy seat shall the faces of the cherubims be, and thou shalt put the mercy seat above upon the ark, and in the ark thou shalt put the testimony that I shall give thee, and there I will meet with thee, and I will commune with thee from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubims which are upon the ark of the testimony of all things which I will give thee in commandment unto the children of Israel. God says, I will commune with you because of my mercy that is dealt with your sin. On that mercy seat every year there was blood applied. You know what there was a reminder of? The cost for us to get mercy is the justice of God carried out on Jesus Christ. The innocent took the price of the guilty. The one who fulfilled the law took the punishment of those of us who've broken the law. And God's justice was satisfied so that you and I one man said, I can do it. I'll satisfy all your righteous demands. There's one person that has kept all the commandments, the whole thing without breaking it ever. And that's Jesus Christ. 
And it's His blood, the Bible tells us, that He applied personally. If you read the rest of Hebrews 9, the Bible says He ascended and applied His blood personally at the mercy seat in heaven on our behalf once and for all. It was pointed out by one of the authors I was writing. The high priest in the Holy of Holies never sat down. He would come and he would apply the blood and go back out the next year. He would walk in, apply the blood and come back out the next year. He'd walk in and apply the blood and come back out. But Jesus once went in and applied his blood and the Bible says and sat down. You know what it says when you sit down? It's done. Don't go back to the law. That's finished in Christ. We have something way better than the blood of a bull or a goat. The blood of Jesus satisfied everything God requires of us. His blood shed to pay for the sins of every man, the Bible says. He tasted death for every man. We don't flee to a a lifestyle. We flee to a person this morning. Don't flee back to trying to keep the commandments. That's the best anybody can do. I'm a trying and a failing, I might say. Put your trust in the person who tried and succeeded and lives. That's the glory of the gospel. The one who put his blood on the mercy seat is alive this morning to give you forgiveness and salvation. We flee to a living person, the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what this mercy is a picture of. Go to Romans 3. We're almost done. You said you said that a few minutes ago. Well, it was true a few minutes ago. It's even more true now. Romans chapter 3. You know verse 23 very well. Romans 3, 23, but I want to read through verse 25. I learned something I never knew what I'm about to tell you this morning until somebody else taught it to me. Romans chapter 3, verse 23. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. That's that pot of manna and the, the rod that budded and the Ten Commandments. We've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. Verse 24. Being justified, meaning being cleared of our guilt even though we've sinned freely by His grace. God bestowing that which we did not earn through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Look at verse 25. Whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation through faith in His blood to declare His righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God. Verse 26 says, To declare, I say at this time, His righteousness that He might be just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. Now here's what I want to point out to you. In verse 25, the word propitiation. That same Greek word is used in Hebrews 9.5. You know what it is in English in Hebrews 9.5? Mercy seat. It is the exact same Greek word. Jesus Christ, the propitiation for our sins, is the mercy seat in Hebrews 9.5. His blood is what makes it possible for us to commune with God. Someone, someone who has some grasp of, well, I know God is good and I know God is holy. And somebody will say something like this. So are you going to heaven when you die? Is God going to accept you? Well, I try to be—I try to tell the truth. I'm a pretty honest person. You know how honest God is? He cannot lie. So until you're that honest, you can't go to heaven. So we better not put faith in our righteousness, had we? Our faith is in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That's where we rest. You know what? He is the propitiation. He is the mercy seat. It is His shed blood that brings God and man together. The sinfulness of man and a faithfulness of God. How, are, how is a sinful man and a faithful God brought together? Jesus Christ, God who became man, was faithful for man and represents us to God. For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Our last text this morning, Hebrews chapter 4, articulates it so well. We, we dealt with this verse last week at the end of the message. Hebrews chapter 4 verses 15 and 16, and then we're concluded with the message. It says in verse 14, Seeing then that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our, our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin, because of who Jesus Christ is, verse 16, Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. What claim do we make to be able to come into the presence of a God who knows we've broken our part of the covenant, that we've not lived up to His righteousness? We can only claim what Jesus Christ has done for us and what He does for us today. We put our faith not in our performance, but in Jesus Christ. He shed his blood to pay for my sins and he lives to shield me and deliver me from the wrath of God. Is it not true? 
He is the mercy seat. It is Jesus Christ who deals with all of our transgressions. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. With his stripes we are healed. The question for you today, first and foremost, is are you still trusting your righteousness to make you fit to commune with God? Or have you come to realize if I try to approach God and he gives me what I deserve, it's wrath because I have broken his commandments. I have lied. I have been adulterer at heart. I have been a murderer at heart. I am I'm an idolater at heart and God knows it. And if he gave me what I deserve today, he'd send me into eternity in hell. But Christ. Christ fulfilled every righteous demand of God and then laid down that perfect life to pay for our sins. My question for each of you today, have you fled to Christ to take care of your sins before a holy God? That is salvation. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Are you resting in Jesus Christ's righteousness? If not, there's no mercy. He's the mercy seat. He is the shield of God's wrath that allows us to commune with God. Because of Jesus' perfection, let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace. Now, Christian, I started with this this morning. You may say, well, some of this I understand. I understand I don't deserve to have a relationship or fellowship with God. I understand all of that. I asked, how's your prayer life? We have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Meaning, you and I both know we don't deserve for God to listen to our prayer. We deserve his judgment. But he says, come boldly because of who your high priest is. And you, that you may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. When was the last time I took that commandment and promise and acted on it and said, Lord, this morning you know I'm going to face temptations in my flesh that are stronger than I can bear, but I'm asking you to impart to me what I need today to overcome them. Lord, I do not deserve for you to hear me, but I realize Christ did everything for me. I can pray because my, Christ is my Savior. Are we taking full advantage of the privilege we have to approach God's throne of grace, God giving us what we don't deserve because of who our mercy seat is. God has made a way for our sins to be dealt with. And if we have come to Christ, they're dealt with. We have mercy from God. Are we using that to approach God and receive the mercy and grace we need? Mm-hmm.